Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Rachel Moses. Rachel is the Associate Director of Rehabilitation and Therapies and a Consultant Respiratory Physiotherapist. This interview, and I'm saying this with a massive smile on my face, I believe Rachel has been the most open and honest guest we've had on the podcast. And when you get to the bit about her getting naked, you'll understand why. (laughs) We talk about diversity and the conversations that she's been facilitating and in the early days was discouraged to do. We talk about uncomfortable truths. We talk about confidence. We talk about the leadership lessons that Rachel learned during COVID wave one. We talk about her work-life balance and lack of it at the moment. We talk about social media and how Rachel uses it. And Rachel also shares with us what she would tell her teenage self. I know that this interview is really, really going to make you smile. And I think that you would agree. And for those of you that know Rachel, what you see is what you get. And she's truly herself. And it's really, really inspiring to watch. And I'm really, really pleased that I know her. Enjoy. Let me know your key takeaways of this episode. And I would absolutely love it if you came back next week for the next episode. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well. Delighted to be here. Thank you. I know you don't think that you are, but you are quite a big deal. Could you share for my listeners that may not be aware of you, who you are and what you do? Well, I'm proper cringing already. So thanks very much. You know, I got my girl fan you, so let's just get that out of the way right now. So my name is Rachel Moses and I am a consultant respiratory physiotherapist by trade and background. So I'm a non-medical consultant and I am currently an associate director of rehabilitation and therapies at the Royal Brompton and Harefield. And I have numerous other roles aside from my day job in that I, I sit on a council for our physiotherapy and profession. And I'm honorary president for a student um, reference group. I also work and probably one of the most things I'm proud of recently is I've just been um, elected president-elect for the British Thoracic Society, which is quite a big deal in the respiratory world. And I'm the first ever non-medic and the fourth female. Um, so I am proud of that. 
and I work for Medical Aid for Palestinians as a face team coordinator, so that's a charity, and I co-chair and chair a couple of respiratory groups. So I do do a lot. I cram it all in there, if you, if you like, and yeah, that, that's kind of, that's what I do. How do you find the time? Well, that's, a, I mean, look, I could stay the same to Utah, I couldn't I? I mean, God, you're, you're smashing it all in, free children, a dog, podcast, entrepreneur, so, I, I, I mean, I, I work a lot. I don't have a great work-life balance. And that's the first thing I always say to people, like, never compare yourself to other people. And I'm going to say especially women, but probably especially parents, because I don't have children. And I know you always, you said that the first time we, um, we ever chatted, you know, why, why do you say that? But I think children take up a massive amount of your time. So because I don't have children and I, I work away from home, so through the week I'm at work, which isn't my home, so I'm super productive. And yeah, that, that's how I fit it in. I suppose lifestyle choices, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think people ask me the same question. It kind of goes back to, you must be a very highly productive person. Do you kind of time block your day? So you say, I'm only going to do this role now or do this in the evening, or I'm only available for this at this amount of time. Or do you just let, you know, do you just try to cram in as much as you can and just let people just chuck everything at you? No, that's a great question because my, you know, my proper job is in the NHS. My work hours are very much my NHS job. Now I have a great boss. I have a really supportive boss and a really supportive organisation because I work in a specialist heart and lung and trust. And a lot of my work, like I said, is respiratory. So I can have overlap. I can totally have overlap. But in my type of role, which is probably similar to your type of role, Tara, the work has to be done. So when you do it, there's a bit of flex of when you do it. You have deadlines, you have things that become priority number one, that were priority number five, sometimes within a very short period of time. But I do think the higher up the chain you like, if you go in healthcare, the more personal sacrifices maybe you have to make. And again, the, what I try and say to people is when you're ready to make that personal sacrifice is the time to take the opportunities. Now that might be right or wrong. I don't know, but we are the national health service. And I think that that's where we are. I don't know anyone who's got to the more senior positions without having to make some sort of personal sacrifice. And that normally is time. That's normally things creep in. And I suppose as an example, you know, we are recording this, it's quarter to seven in the evening. So I think we make time for the things that that we want to. And you just say no to the things that you don't. I I do think it's a bit of a funny saying, but the more you can do, the more you can do. And I liken it to, I wouldn't class myself as a runner, but if you can run 5K, you can run 10K. If you can run 10K, you can run a half. If you can run a half, you can run a full. If you can do a full, you know, you can do 100K. And I know that sounds extreme, but you can. I am living proof you can. So I think the more you can do, the more you you kind of get into a work zone and you can just hammer it out, can't you? When you're, when you're in the right frame of mind and you're doing work and you're with people that you really enjoy, you can just get it done. Exactly. And sometimes it's about goal setting. Sometimes it's about being an achiever 
and I'd, I, the term high achiever I don't re, I've never really understood what that means but if you set yourself goals either in your life or in your work life and you achieve them those types of people very really are sat, rarely are satisfied when you get there it's always like what's the next thing what's the next yeah. thing and there's something intrinsic about you that makes just people I suppose like us you know the same it's like maybe what drives us maybe what how we value success intrinsically maybe just the type of characteristics we're born with and of course the people around where that were shaped by and what our experiences are it's like that positive reinforcement isn't it what is your intrinsic motivation what drives you to take on all these roles and want to progress higher up I say ladder you know whatever the ladder is but what makes you get up and just do what you do do you know uh, as I get asked to do more leadership like talks and questions I've asked myself this a lot and I sat down with my mum who is like the polar opposite of me she's like she's quite short for a start and she's a nurse both my parents but my entire family have been NHS actually my two siblings aren't which is interesting and they're so quiet they're so kind they're so patient and then there's me who's like in your face larger than life and she said you know whatever since you were a kid she said I just didn't know where I got you from she said if you didn't look like me I would swear I would have got the wrong child back so I was like oh thanks ma'am but she said ever since you were like in the playground you would be the one organizing the other kids like even if it was like catchy kissy or tag (laughs) or if it was like who wants to be the milk monitor I was even the milk monitor so she said whenever there was an opportunity for someone either like I suppose she used to call it bossy you know I take control I just organize things for other people it was always me she said she just doesn't know where I got it from so part of the driver is I think just ingrained in who I am I started to do charity work very early on, like 11, 12 years old and voluntary work in care homes, I think, because I see my mum and dad being nurses. And then that kind of just cascaded and I just have this overwhelming sense of need to be better myself, to better myself for my patients. I think that's where the consultant role came in and aspiring to be in the very best position in healthcare, not because of the status necessarily, but because that's the position of influence for your patients. You can be the biggest advocate. You have, you know, more persuasive power. You have more authority, I suppose, across the whole of the healthcare system that you're involved in. So I know that probably sounds really cheesy, but that's honestly mm-hmm. what it was. And now it's now being in more management, I've realised that I had a limit in clinical management. So now I've took the next step into like strategic operational level to try and influence So when we first met, you kindly invited me on to a panel discussion around diversity. And I really, really thank you because I I feel like I snuck on because I'm not an allied health professional. But um, it was really, really, really helpful. It highlighted the leadership and the risk that you were willing to take in not just once, not just twice. You created a series of discussions around diversity and inclusion and um, exclusion and discrimination. And I'd really, really just, yeah, really want to thank you. Did anybody dissuade you from doing this? Yeah, so 
around the time of the publication of the Public Health England report, which obviously showed a tr- terrible disparity in the you know, our black Asian minority ethnic colleagues and patients that were affected with COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matters campaign. I realised more than ever the lack of conversations that happened within my profession, so within the the allied health professions. And I thought, what is my role in this? What can I do as a white ally, as someone who has a position of power? Everything I've just said. So I suggested pulling together these podcasts that were free, that were easily accessible, that were downloadable. But what I needed was panels and I needed people to speak and come on the journey with me. And mentioning though that first concept, there was people that was on board, but there was people that were very not on board. And the reason for that was it's not our place to solve the problem. It can be quite traumatic for people who have had that lived experience. And obviously, being a white host of a podcast, talking about Black Lives Matter and also disparity findings among a community that I'm not part of, obviously had, from some people's perspectives, was not right. So I very kind of quickly had to make a decision to go with what my gut was and the consensus and then just try and listen and learn to what other people's anxieties were because there would have been value in that and there would have been truth in that and it's people's lived experiences and I didn't want to discount that but I also knew from being on my journey what other white managers might need to know and how they could change their conversation with their staff who would be hurting so that, yes, there was, yes, not everyone was on board of that, but I understand the reasons why and I appreciate and, you know, agree with their reasons why I would never not. And we talked about uncomfortable truths. Um, so one of the uncomfortable truths, and I mentioned it today, is you, I hadn't heard the term white ally. And it made me look back at my career and I just thought, oh, at the time, I thought, oh, God, I've had loads of white allies. Am I not where I am because of my own efforts? And it, initially, I did. I felt a bit like, oh, fuck, like, I was going to swear then. <laughs> I did think, oh, like, I don't know why. It just didn't fit, sit very well with me initially. And I've really, really thought about it. And I thought, oh, actually, I've had, I have got white allies in my life. I... And I've had so many opportunities and I'd like to think that I got the opportunity because somebody saw something in me and then I did, I did the work. So I kind of made my piece of that. What uncomfortable truths have have you had through facilitating these conversations? So I started my journey on understanding my privilege about eight or nine years ago, my first management job in a very diverse part of London. And the uncomfortable truths I learned back then was about my unconscious and very conscious bias that I just never faced before. So that was often around not calling things out at the time when I seen it. And people say, oh, you know, I'm not a racist or I don't. I don't believe in race or especially because I was, well, I am, sorry, in a mixed race marriage. And I just, and I'd never really conceptualized it and I'd never really thought about it in detail. But when I started to see more things around me that was 
everyday racism, the microaggressions, how I interviewed, how I realized that I'd deliberately in the past appointed people that look like me, that act like me, that speak like me. That was a really uncomfortable truth because I did. And it was because part of it was recognizing that part of it was was because my society made me like that. It's how I was brought up in a very white, British, heteronormative environment. And it was acknowledging that, but also then listening and learning to how I needed to change to be more inclusive, to allow diversity into my life in different ways, which was finding, seeking people out, talking. And as a manager, that was my first clinical management role, just taking the time to have those conversations with people and understanding challenges people had had that I'd never had as a white British born female I suppose I mean I would always class myself as working class but you know I am middle class I just don't sound it I sound common but um <laughs> but but um and I think it's it's un, with with white privilege it's understanding isn't it that it doesn't it's it's not about being better it's not about not having experienced traumas or terrible things in your life because people will have that regardless it's about not having the additional barriers in your life to achieve the same level as what other people may or may not can you try to further describe the recruitment so when you said you have deliberately kind of unconsciously but deliberately recruited people that look and remind you of yourself in that moment can you describe what led you to recruit? What is the conversation that you're having either with yourself or with your colleagues when you, you see Tara and Tahira, Tara's white, Tahira's black. We're very similar, similar experience, but what makes you lean towards the, what in the past made you lean towards the white candidate? So quite often it was behaviours and it was about how someone will present themselves. So obviously I'm quite loud or like loud. I am loud. I can be quite brash. I can, I can come up across as very overtly confident. I don't always feel confident, but I think if you showcase yourself, you are confident, then, you know, you, people think you are. And it's those behaviours that I think in my professional world, in my profession, that are strong characteristics that you're going to be successful in your role. So when someone's bit, when I'm interviewing someone, I want to see those at interview. Now, someone who has a very different cultural upbringing to me, they might not exhibit those same behaviors for very different reasons. So, and when I've spoke to people from different cultural backgrounds and said, you know, why don't you speak like I speak? And certainly when I've mentored, say, Asian male physios, particularly two Bangladeshi physios I can think of, then it's because of the way they're perceived if they speak the same way as me. So in an interview, that really got, that really challenged my thought because I can't, I I can't expect people to behave like me for many different reasons. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely. And I think that hopefully when people listen to this, that if they find themselves on the hiring panel or can influence hiring decisions is to just check. It's a bit of a, it's slightly the same when we did, when I did my scholarship and we got people to send in um, videos and I had two people on the panel with me because I really, really didn't just want to recruit people. I didn't want it to just be lots of Taras. And every time somebody 
if I had a strong reaction to somebody and I thought, "Mm, no, no, I want to see more. I want to see this. I want to see that. I really managed to stop myself and check myself and just think just because they're not, and I'm not larger than life, but just because you're not larger than life and you're really trying to sell yourself, it doesn't mean somebody that is more quiet, more softly spoken, somebody that's not wanting to change the world um, isn't a worthy candidate. So I think we all have that. And I think the more we have these conversations, it's just a reminder. As soon as you make, as soon as you're aware of it and people remind you, you, you just, you get it and you're like, of course. And then you, you see that person in a completely different light. So I think that's, I think that's really, really helpful. But you know, the really important point you just made there is you have, you deliberately had diversity on your panel. So you had people watching with you. And I think that's what in my profession, the NHS, we don't have, we'll have tip, look at the people, especially get higher up the ladder. Look at the people who are interviewing you. I stopped at that moment and looked around me and who was in the similar roles to me. And it won't surprise you that it was all the same, like white um, middle-class managers and it's so now the changes that I've made is to have the diverse panel like you've said to have someone that can come in with that diversity of thought and think about things from a different angle and actually listen and if they bring something to the table like listen and you know and be inquisitive about why they might think differently to you so yeah I just wanted to make that point because people often say well how can it be different and and for, for me, I, I externally source panel members as well because you can't rely on the same people to, you know, be a, be your kind of support on mm. panels. So, and this is where maybe it's really hard. It is hard to, you know, and money's not, money's obviously a limiting factor as well, in, especially in the NHS, but there needs to be reciprocal agreements moving forward, I think, between trusts and organizations to help the inclusivity that's what that's where I think we're missing the trick because we're so siloed how do you avoid tokenism in that so tokenism is important in two ways during the recruitment process isn't it and also on the panel so and it's it's until we have equality in throughout the leadership structures of the National Health Service, there's, we're always going to lean on our colleagues of colour to help either, you know, sense check, provide an opinion, use their diversity of thought to help us to understand what is truly inclusive and diverse because we're looking through things through a completely separate lens. So we need more funded posts. We need more, op- like, specifically for equality and diversity. We need more funded positions in terms of leadership positions that are exclusively open to candidates from ethnically diverse backgrounds. This is all my opinion, obviously. And I think we need to level the playing field. And to do that, we need to we need to offer opportunities to people who are from diverse backgrounds. That that's my opinion. That's how we do it right now. And that will avoid the tokenism because it's identifying that we lack diversity in the first place because the playing field hasn't been level. I would agree. And I would add to that and say that if 
And I, I'm not where you are because it is, I think you've done tremendous amounts of work. And I think the AHP community is diverse and it's lovely seeing the conversations, especially on social media. And I had a really good conversation um, with Karen Middleton. That went down really well. But if you, I think support needs to be added to that. So I find myself or have found myself in an environment where I'm the only black person. And so I feel like I say to people, I've, I've, I've snuck in and somehow I found myself there, but it's very hard. And it's, you know, somebody, or you need a few people to be the first, but if you are the first, it can be very difficult, very lonely, very daunting to speak up and say, and I think I've had firsthand experience when I've said to people like, they obviously, they know I'm black, but then when you say I'm black and this is my experience in this environment if you didn't feel lonely already it can feel a very lonely cold place so I think if when people do recruit and they don't have much diversity and you are recruiting because the person has got the skills but they do come from a diverse background is to make sure that they have got a coach they've got a mentor they've got a safe space to go where they can truly be themselves and say this is my experience because otherwise it's a it's a lot to show it's a lot to uh, a lot of burden on your shoulders potentially if you are the only one or a few I completely agree and around it come we need that space so we need the space we need protected time we need the acknowledgement that that's important and I think again in healthcare particularly the NHS we're just not there yet at recognizing and appreciating that. And that's why the systemic oppression, that's why the glass ceiling, that's why the institutional racism will continue and continue until we get this part right. And this is why we need change like we've never had before. And it needs people like me, you know, I'm not going to change the world. I'm one voice, but if lots of people like me come together with lots of, you know, everyone across the spectrum from newly grads all the way up to the chief execs and that's why some of your work Tara is amazing it that only then will we have that whole system approach do you feel like will you continue these conversations oh yeah and I said on one of the podcasts if it's a year down the line and I'm all silent you need to be like hey Moses what you what you doing for that six months <laughs> So, yeah, I think there's, there's things that I've introduced in my own organisation and my own teams to help try and improve diversity, cultural competence, cultural understanding. I'm shocked every day. I'm shocked every day by people's ignorance, especially now more than ever. But I try not to be too disheartened about it because this isn't this isn't about me. And this is it is from what the disappointment I feel it's just, tiny fraction of what other people have been through so we've got a lot of work to do so yeah Tara the conversations will still continue I am surrounded by strong strong women and together we are coming together all different colors all different backgrounds all different sexual orientations like all different levels of ability and this is the this is the system change I'm hoping will come together as a collective force and a collective voice that's what we're aiming for. Cool. Count me in, count me in. <laughs> so moving on, I would like to talk about confidence. So you said, I come across as very confident. I don't always feel confident, but from a kid, I had that confidence. You're a born leader. How do you show up 
when it really matters when inside you don't feel confident oh because I'm probably because I'm terrified of failure okay so it's I, I, I can I say that thinking of you in my head so regardless of what it is I'm just terrified of failure so just last Friday, I think I did an online conference. There was a couple of thousand, I think, nearly just, <laughs> just under. a couple. <laughs> it doesn't sound massive when you say it, but then you, you, it is, isn't it? You think in your head, oh, my God, why do they want to hear what I've got to say? Are they just going to be not enough? Are they going to be on the iPhone? How do you? In, it, all these things go through your head. But I think I just have self-belief. And I don't know what it is, Tara. I, I think that I just really want to do a good job and I take the hard hits and the failures really personally and I don't really like the word failure but sometimes when you're executing a task and you don't achieve it or you don't achieve it very well or you don't get good feedback that is a failure so yeah I think I'm just scared of failure. But when you do experience it how do you bounce back? Oh, that's a great question. So I always try and learn. I'm a learner. I always want to be better. So if I've not executed something, or I've not achieved something or something hasn't went the way I planned, I work out A, if it's a failure, B, if it's just a lesson learned, see what I can do to change to make sure if I'm in that situation again, it doesn't happen again. But I think the most important lesson is to learn from it and pick yourself up and get on with it. It's like when people go for jobs and they don't get them. I'm like, it wasn't your job. It was, you know, it, it was, there's something better going to come along. And I do have a level of optimism about us, but yeah, I just try and get back up. Okay. So you've got quite a big social media following. <laughs> do, you, do you think? I don't really know how. You do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you ever, do you ever feel pressure? Do you ever think if you get something wrong, your community... We'll, they'll be there there I was mean, something actually you posted you posted something oh when was it and I think I messaged you we're gonna have to edit this bit out oh there was a, something that you posted and you said I'm, I'm not gonna delete it you'd been asked to delete something oh yeah and you said I'm not so let me just say that so a while ago it wasn't that long ago but you posted something and I think someone had asked you to delete it and you were like I I'm not deleting it <laughs> I'm not deleting it. And you said it was, I was watching and I just thought, I hate, I hate it when pe people say this to me. I mean, I've never done anything that is brave. People just say to me, Tori, you're just, you're so brave. I haven't even done anything. I've just gone to work. But that was brave. And sometimes if I posted something, I think, oh God, that's wrong. That may be interpreted. I might delete it, but you didn't delete this tweet. What is going through your mind? And do you ever get scared? Yeah, I mean, I've been told off a few times, um, <laughs> definitely. Um, so that tweet was in really, I mean, I have got a couple of tweets where that have been controversial and I've had quite, you know, either trolls or I've had things said. The tweet you're referring to was about interviews, actually, and it was about interview bias. And I basically said that, you know, we have, until we call out interview bias in the NHS, people from diverse backgrounds are never going to get to positions of like leadership roles and responsibility. Like that, the the colour on boards isn't going to change. And the reason I put that out was it, and it was a bit emotive because, and I was triggered, and it was because I'd been mentoring a couple of people for interviews, and the three or four. This was the fourth 
person that hadn't got the role. And I knew that person should have got that role. I, I knew and they didn't. And without going into the, yeah. you know, the details of it, the reason was for the interview bias. It 100% was. And people were given opportunities that other people weren't. And that triggered a quite a big response. And then I was asked to take the tweet down because it made the NHS look bad and we needed to be able to recruit people into the NHS and not, you know, think that they couldn't get into a job. So again, people not not acknowledging it was actually a problem, just wanting to hide the problem. So that I was filled with fury. So that's why I retweeted the tweet and said, I'm not deleting it, which has probably brought more attention. And I think I used the F word at some point in the, <laughs> at some point in the tweet, which probably isn't very professional, but you know, I'm, you're tweeting a personal capacity. So yeah, so I mean, yeah, I suppose you could say that was brave. It was bold, but it was really just a sense of frustration and anger again, you know, because I'd had this bond with these people who... I felt were, they'd had an opportunity taken away from them. It wasn't that they'd failed at something. I genuinely felt and believed that they hadn't been given an opportunity. And yeah. Why do you use social media? And what advice would you give to other directors or CEOs using that medium to communicate outwards? Oh, so it's really, it's really important you get the balance right, isn't it? When you're in the highest of positions, you, yes, you could tweet in a personal capacity, but you're also very much a public figure, aren't you? You very much have to be with your brand, you know, and I'm kind of in that gray area at the minute where I'm not that important enough to be a brand. So I can still speak my mind, speak truth, be a bit controversial, told off you know but really there's no repercussions of it so I use social media to help disseminate information so particularly during COVID times it was a really like quick dirty raw way to get information out and then obviously just trying to like crowdsource so we use networks to get interested people saying podcasts on networks or working groups, but even just putting tweets out about you know so for example we've done the change in culture Changing in Cultural Conversation podcast. I'm now moving on to the LGBTQI plus podcast. So I'll be like, I'm looking for lesbian women. I am looking for gay men. I'm looking for trans. So it's just being very specific about your ask. And then people, you know, then saying, oh, yes, I, I wouldn't have seen that in network because I'm not part of it. I'm not part of that trust. I wouldn't have seen it. But here it is on social media. And the kids all use it, don't they? Like the, <laughs> the students do the Instagram stuff because I don't do Instagram very well. So they do the Insta side, the students, and then I do the Twitter stuff. So yeah, cool. that's why I use it. And you've just talked about COVID. So at the time of recording, we have just entered into our second lockdown. What leadership lessons have you learned about yourself from managing COVID the first time? So... Leadership and crisis, especially in healthcare leadership, is something that you automatically draw on your life experiences, don't you? So when I think about crisis leadership and especially in some of the roles, so, so for example, I went to the Nightingale to help set the Nightingale London up. I do humanitarian work, disaster relief work, ex-military. So you draw on your experiences of crisis management because there's not that normal information gathering process. There's not that normal time 
to um, kind of gather the evidence and make a plan about what you want to do, what you have to do. And this is what we're doing in COVID first wave is you, you, you prioritize your planning. If you've got psychological safety in your team, if you know, if you have a good team and a good network around you, you know who your decision makers are. You know who your go-to people are. You know who your like circle of trust is and who your leaders are. So then you start making decisions with active listening to help inform your plan and then either delegate or do the do. So it's this cycle, cycle of kind of process and action that happens in a much faster pace than anything else. So in terms of leadership, whoever you are, you need to know where you sit in that picture. So for me, obviously I'm in like one of the strategic kind of zones, the, the, the decision maker roles within a big team. So I manage a team, but that's within a big team. And then I know who I'm accountable to, they're accountable to me. And it's about empowering people to be able to make decisions and trusting people. But again, you know who those go-to people are. So the leadership lessons from COVID-1 is that we had to know that. So teams that knew that and teams already had those structures worked really well. The teams that didn't, it was really hard for them. In COVID-2, we've obviously learned more lessons through quick dissemination, through quick learning, through things like podcasts, webinars, sharing information. God, Tara, in the old days in the NHS, if you'd asked, if you'd emailed another trust to say, can I borrow your X guideline? They would have been like, yes, if you sever off your right arm, put it in a jiffy bag and send it was in the post box. In and COVID, now Yeah, in yeah. COVID, it's like, here you go. Here's the Word document. It's not even PDF path, password protected. It's in a <laughs> Word document that you can plagiarize. So th- that is great leadership because people are sharing their knowledge and they're not frightened of someone else criticizing it because that's the biggest reason people don't share things in the NHS because they think someone else is going to think it's rubbish. It's like you've spent eight hours writing this guideline. Why don't we share it? Why don't we, you know, let people use it? So, and it's so that they're the biggest leadership le- lessons about empowering people, sharing the knowledge, sharing our experiences, being honest about what that was. And then, of course, learning from some of the Public Health England findings about which of our groups are going to be vulnerable, who are going to be more exposed, and having individualized risk assessments as we're heading to, well, now we're in second wave. So. So you mentioned at the very beginning, you don't have the greatest work-life balance. So as we go into COVID-2, and obviously we've seen the news around vaccines and lots of conversations around that, how, if you, or do you feel you need to get a better handle on your work-life balance when you know that this next quarter is going to be quite intense? <laughs> <laughs> so I've got some time off in February. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm <laughs> Everyone's the same. I mean, when I have my down days, I really are down days. I mean, you know, I do have a husband, I have dogs, I live away from home. So I do, I'm very, I know what my boundaries are and I know what my levels are. Not everyone's the same. So yeah, no, the work life balance isn't going to be addressed now, but it definitely will be. What are like, your boundaries? midnight 
Midnight, no. And um, so in COVID one, I tell you what, I put on the COVID pounds. I am telling you, and I don't even know how because I didn't really eat that much, but I ate rubbish and I had the wrong time. Of night. And do you know what it is? I didn't exercise, Tara. And I'm one of them women that I need to exercise. My goodness. So I am not giving the exercise up in COVID two. Like I am literally, I'll go for a run after after we've done whatever, whatever time it is. Just need to get the exercise in because that helps with your mental health, doesn't it? Yeah. Definitely. You know, I'm not putting, I've got Uzo, my friend Uzo, who's a physiotherapist and he's ex-military. I just said to him, I'm sick. I put on a stone and a half and I can't get rid of it. He says, just move more, do more, go to the gym. Stop making excuses, man, Rach. And he says, you know what? It can only get better from here. And I thought, you know what, Pet, you're right. It's only going to get better from here. So I need any time I think, oh, no, I'm not going to go. I just think of Uzo and he's very attractive, by the way. And he's got a very nice body. So it does help motivate us. I've got a tip. I go mean, you, can, you could sign up for Everest or I used to have a Garmin. I've switched back to Fitbit and they do the Fitbit step challenges. And at the moment, me and Steve 967 Ski Man, that's his uh, handle, it's like, I, why are you trying to beat me? <laughs> you're not. You're, you're not. I ran oh 16 miles at the weekend. And that was partially down to him. I was like, you're not going to beat me. So that is, and like the poor dog's like, don't make me go out for a walk again. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love you, so but I'm, is... I'm definitely not playing against you, though. <laughs> I'll have you on my team. I wouldn't go against you. <laughs> So yeah, yesterday I went out, it chucked it down with rain and I thought, no, I just need to get, just need to get a couple of thousand ahead. So that's one tip. I mean, yeah, it seems extreme, but you know, anything, anything to keep the pounds off. Absolutely, pet. Especially in your 40s. <laughs> Honestly, you don't, don't know where know. to go from in your 40s. It's I horrible. I, I'm with you. I feel your pain. So as we wrap up, actually, I've got some questions for you. Quick fire. Don't overthink them okay what is the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you at work oh god oh uh. (laughs) (laughs) oh god there's two things I don't think I can bring myself to this okay god so one time I was in a new place and I needed to get changed out my scrubs quickly so I went into this tiny little office like thing and I thought well I'll just get changed here anyone who's been in scrubs all day knows that that underwear needs changed when they change their scrubs and so I basically got naked in this office room and changed from my scrubs into my clothes and I looked up and there was a security (laughs) camera (laughs) flashing at us and they obviously could see everything so I didn't do what normal girls would do and like take that take that top half off and get changed and then take that bottom half off oh no I got naked in a cupboard at work so, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was that was it and uh yeah in Preston <laughs> so that's one that's one we'll see other one go on oh I can't see yes, it you can. can't. you're amongst friends no I can't we've all I... been there we've all been there well it was just obviously it involved a toilet and it obviously involved us again getting changed somewhere I shouldn't have been in a toilet. So, oh, I'll just quickly use the toilet and hand lock the door. So someone walked in. Not only was I just using the toilet, I was naked on the door. 
at work like why would you do that why why even would you do that why would you take your clothes off in a toilet cubicle why would I do that okay my next question is what mistake do you keep making over and over again (laughs) well it's probably taking my clothes off I mean any I have to admit I love taking my clothes off when I've had a drink and I'm just laughing back to my team at George's because when I didn't become their manager again when I when I left and I wasn't a manager I went cottaging now I know cottaging means something different from southerners but to me it means hiring a cottage and going away so I hired a cottage <laughs> and went away and um, I literally took it I don't know what gets into us but obviously this is outside work obviously I have a bit of alcohol related and I just get my clothes off and I decided to run outside the cottage and like with my clothes off and just run inside so yeah it's taken me clothes off Tara that seems in, in, in inappropriate places <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this to you it's my hard-hitting journalistic expertise if you could go back in time what would you tell your teenage self um not to get your clothes off in inappropriate places <laughs> no um <laughs> you know this is quite quite hard I'd say just always be kind because I look back and because I've been frustrated about some things in my younger career, I haven't always been kind. And knowing what I know now, you can all you can achieve the same things, but always be kind. Even if someone's really frustrating and really horrible to you, just be kind back because you never know what that other person's going through. And you just think, oh, they're being an idiot, oh, they're being horrible. But actually be kind back to them. Like that. What are you looking forward to in the next 10 years? So the big five O. Oh, I'm looking forward to the change that I can potentially make in this new role. I've been in it five months now. I'm looking forward to a better work-life balance. I'm looking forward to the journey of the new friends that I've made because of the tragedy. Like this tragic, tragic situation has opened my life to so many incredible people including yourself Tara so I'm very grateful of that and I'm excited to what the future holds for that reason when lockdown two ends we can go drinking what even though you know there's a high chance I'll get my clothes off and I tell you what Tara it's not pretty anymore it's not pretty pet so just prepare yourself (laughs) I'll be wearing a jumpsuit up to here (laughs) oh that doesn't stop is that doesn't stop is I'm telling you if you could only keep three things from your home what would you pick and why does the two dogs class as one go on then okay the two me two dogs of a photograph album that I have a lot of special photos in for this reason in case there's a fire that's by the front door and study oh number three I don't know. I feel like I was going to say, but what about your husband? But then I was thinking lip balm. <laughs> no, no, I'd probably, do you know what it is? I sleep naked. So I'd probably put some clothes on. <laughs> dressing gown. A dressing gown, your dogs. <laughs> and a photo album. You also, you don't need food. <laughs> or money. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. If people want to connect with you on Twitter, what is your handle? At AHP Leader, so Allied Health Professional Leader. Thank Um, you so much. If anyone wants to watch any of the videos, they're on YouTube channel, AHP Leader. They're all free. I don't get any money or advertisement. They're just great people having great conversations and you might learn something. 
definitely thank you so much thank you Thank you so much for joining us. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media. You can find me on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram again at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you really like it, it would be great if you left us an iTunes five star rating and review. And I will see you in the next episode.